So last week uh, we're talking about uh, eschatology, that's prophecy, future things. Last week we started out with the motive, the motive, why, why should we do such a thing? I mean, we're going to find out, uh, so no big deal. What is the reason why we should look at prophecy? One third of the Bible is prophecy, so uh, that should indicate that it's important to God, but the uh, motive is to motivate. In other words, why study it? So we're motivated because we're fixing our eyes on the finish line, running the race with endurance, running the race with some purpose and meaning and not just uh, treading water. And so it's always great to see what God has planned for the future and we can see what's coming up and we're motivated uh, to make uh, the most of our time and to bear as much fruit as we possibly can and to grow and be as much like Jesus as we possibly can. And so this morning we're going to look at the method we looked at motive last week, and we're going to look at method. In other words, we're going to study the topic of <coughs> eschatology, how we're going to do that, what's the method. Before that, we'll finish what we did last week. So in your notes, number 15, uh, if you got notes from last week, if you don't have last week's notes, just uh, listen. And uh, by the way, um, all of this is online. You can listen to the, the presentation online. You can also get the notes online. And so you can just sleep and not even come. <laughs> just joking. Don't do that. Uh, so I'll read this. Our presence in heaven. Did, are they have it on the PowerPoint? Yeah, yeah. Our presence in heaven, our salvation from hell, is by grace alone. By faith we believe the gospel to be true and follow Jesus and are saved. So when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, the rewards that we receive there, our character and the difference it makes, uh, I'm talking to believers. Our salvation is free by grace and grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift, the gift, the gift, like a birthday present. Yeah, like a birthday present. Uh, we've got a couple of days yet. Tuesday, my birthday, a birthday present, gift of God, not as a result of works, no works required that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, we're created for good works, we're not saved by good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, I've gone through this a whole bunch, but I thought it would be a good point to go through it again real quick. The gospel. Pastor Mike's been talking about the gospel. And uh, you remember, God gave you five fingers for a reason. And that, that each finger corresponds to one of the key points of the gospel. The gospel is, this is what we need to believe. First point, Jesus is God. Jesus is God, equal with the Father, one with the Father. Now, when you study various groups, cults, one of the things that you'll often hear is that Jesus was created. He had a beginning. Now, the gospel says that Jesus and the Father are one, neither without beginning. All have, both have the attributes of God. Jesus is God, equal with the Father. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one, Jesus speaking. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So Jesus claimed to be God. 
and he is God. Second point to the gospel, he left heaven, emptied himself of all that he was as God, became flesh, just like me, just like you. Jesus became 100% man, maintaining his relationship with the Father as God, but emptying himself of the attributes of God, became flesh like you and I, so that he struggled like you and I, had all the temptations that you and I do. John 1.14, the Word became flesh, became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order, in order, that means this had to happen, in order that he might redeem, redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. He became like us so that we could become like him. Philippians 2.6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, held onto, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being made in the likeness of men. Hebrews 2.14 and 17, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren. He had, it had to happen. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. First John 4, <clears throat> Pastor Michael get to this in a couple of weeks. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit, every teaching, that confesses that Jesus came in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that denies, uh, that does not confess this, is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. And so those who are teaching truth will teach that Jesus came in the flesh. Those who are teaching error or falsehood will teach that he did not. Third point to the gospel. As a man, Jesus lived a perfect life, never sinning, not even a little bitty sin, not even a sin of thought or attitude. So when the devil was tempting Jesus, his goal was to make it so that he was no longer qualified to be our substitute. He knew that if he could get Jesus to commit even a small sin, I mean, how big a deal would it be to turn a rock into a piece of bread? But he knew that if he could get him to do that, that little act, of failing to be submissive to the Father and to be 100% flesh. That one little act of sort of jumping out of where he was in order to have it just a little bit easier in life, that one small thing would have disqualified him from being our substitute on the cross. And so the devil was always trying to get Jesus to sin even a little bit so that he would no longer be eligible to be our substitute. John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Hebrews 4, 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things in every way that we are yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And so the only way he could take on our sin and be our substitute was to be holy and pure without sin. 
Fourth point of the gospel, Jesus was nailed to a cross and while there, God the Father put our sins, mine, on him. He became my sin. And then the Father punished Jesus for my sin. It's called the substitutionary death. In the Old Testament, it was pictured by a lamb that was without blemish and the hands being put on it in a sense of a transfer and then he was slaughtered as a substitute for me. Jesus became a lamb of the world, my substitute for my sin. And so while he hung on the cross, God the Father reached into the future, did what only God could do. He took all of my sins, picked them like apples off of me and put them on Jesus. And Jesus became my sin in that the Father looked at Jesus as if he actually did them. And Isaiah 53 said that Jesus actually felt the guilt of my sin. He felt the shame of my sin. He became my sin on the cross. Multiply that by all the people that have ever lived. And he had that on a moment of time on the cross, the sins of every individual on himself. He felt the shame of it. And then the Father turned his back on Jesus, something that had never happened for all of eternity. They were one. That oneness was broken as the Father turned his back on his own Son, as he observed that he had become our sin, he punished Jesus for my sin, your sin, on the cross. Uh, we don't come close to being able to comprehend what that means, <clears throat> that substitutionary death. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin. To be sin. He became my sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then the fifth point of the gospel, Jesus was buried and three days later, he rose from the dead. He's alive today. So five points of the gospel. You should be able to rattle those off as you talk to people about your faith. Uh, Paul said, uh, the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the very words of the gospel have power to transform. Jesus is God. He became flesh he lived a perfect, sinless life. He became my sin. He took upon himself my sin. He died. He was buried and he rose again three days later and is alive today. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand by, which also you are saved. You're saved by the gospel. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So we're saved by the gospel, by faith, faith alone, no works required. 16, our rank in the kingdom of God our glory, our responsibility when we get to the kingdom, our rewards are determined by our works. Big difference. I'm saved by grace, the gift of God, faith in the gospel. Now I am a child of God, 
and I am living for Him, I am serving Him, I am bearing fruit for Him, I am growing in character to be like Him, and when I get to the end, I will stand before Him at the judgment seat of Christ, and I will be judged, held accountable, rewarded, recompensed. Those rewards will last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Matthew 19, Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything, followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said, Peter, you selfish pig. What's wrong with you? He says, Truly I say to you that you, have, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I'm going to give you a cool job. You're going to rule with me. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much, many times as much at the judgment seat of Christ. He will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. That's in this life. So in this life, there are a lot of people who have more money than I do. There are a lot of people who are better looking than I am. There are a lot of people who have more boats than I do. There are like maybe, ah, think about it. There's nobody that can fish better than I can. Um, so, you know, we look at people, we become jealous of people, envious of where people are. There's, you know, all these hierarchies of people. But Jesus says what's here isn't going to be what's there. So the fact is, when we get there, there will be someone that is first sitting at the right hand of Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool? That was the Apostle Paul's ambition. That's what he wanted. He said, I run the race, not without aim. I don't box as beating the air. He said, I'm in it, and I'm going to win it. That is, I'm going to be at Jesus' right hand, not because of you, but because of Jesus. Some people will say to me, well, that seems kind of, you know, competitive. You want to be there? I don't care about anybody. I just care about Jesus. I want to be as close to Jesus as I possibly can forever. You know, there's going to be some people, they're going to be in heaven, but it, it's going to be like, hey, Jesus, give me a long way away. Now, I don't expect, even though I would like, I don't expect I'm going to be first. But I don't want to be last. I mean, uh, of all the people that are going to be in the church, the body of Christ, the bride, there's going to be somebody that is dead last. Boy, that would be... I don't want to be that person. I'd like to be second, third, up there close, intimate relationship. Uh, and that's very possible because he promises us, you who overcome, you'll sit with me on my throne even as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. That is, you will be near me, you'll be close to me. That's part of what uh, the motive is. Uh, we've got some time. We want to make the most of it and live our life for him. 1 Corinthians 15, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. Another glory of the stars. Star differs from star in glory. There's big stars, little stars, bright stars, dim stars. So also is the resurrection of the dead. 
So there will be levels of glory when we get there. Do you know what's going to be cool is that Jesus is going to say, okay, everybody, stop what you're doing. Angels, you too. And he will tell a story. Yeah, he's going to tell a story about James. And everybody's going to hear, and he is going to give glory to James. And then, okay, go back to what you're doing. And then a little bit later, hey, oh, stop what you're doing. And he's going to tell a story about Lauren. For all eternity, he's going to give us glory. Wouldn't it be sad to be waiting and waiting and waiting and never once does Jesus tell a story about you? Because you never did anything. You're saved by grace, no works required, but rewards and glory and position and responsibility, all of that is a result of the judgment seat of Christ, what we did with our life for Him. And so we're studying this topic to motivate us, not just to tread water. Number 17 in your notes, let's get motivated to bear much fruit. So in your notes, every word there, every blank is motivated. Let's get motivated to do as much as possible with our life for the Lord. You don't have to. You don't have to. If you've trusted Jesus, believed the gospel, you're going to heaven. You're not going to hell. But there's going to be a huge difference, top to bottom, in the level of relationship, the level of joy, the level of glory, the things that you get to do for Him. And uh, don't, don't be content with just getting in. Uh, so we want to be motivated as we study this topic. In your notes, number 18, there are many differences of interpretation in the area of eschatology. Lots of differences. I mean, there's pre-tribulational rapture, there's mid-tribulational rapture, there's post-tribulational rapture, there's partial tribulational rapture, there's pre-wrath rapture, there's premillennialism, there's all-millennialism, there's post-millennialism, there's preterism, there's dispensationalism, there's like more views on eschatology than you can shake a stick at. So which one is right? And how do we arrive at what is true? And so your hermeneutics uh, there's, moving on there on the screen, the most, and most of the differences are because of the differences in hermeneutics. So your hermeneutical system will determine everything about what you believe because that's what you use, the system that you use to interpret the Bible. Number 19, the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient Word of God. So we call it the Word of God because it is the Word of God. Humans wrote it, but they were inspired, motivated by God, by the Holy Spirit. And so we say it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's all-sufficient. It is God's Word. It's how we know Him. It's how we know His will. The Bible is life-transforming. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Number 20, the Holy Spirit illuminates. 
guides and helps us understand the Bible. In other words, without the Holy Spirit working, we can't understand anything. Uh, nothing makes sense. But we're responsible. We're responsible as well to study diligently and accurately in order to understand, in order to understand the full and precise meaning of what we read. And so it's a partnership. He illuminates, we study. Without his illumination, we won't get anything, and he will not illuminate if we don't study and if we don't study accurately, correctly. Ezra 7.10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law. He set his heart. This is what he was going to do. Set his heart to study the law and to practice it, live it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent. Diligent, that means to work hard, don't be lazy. To present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. A workman who accurately handles the word of truth. 1 Timothy 4.15, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself, to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Work hard at your preaching, Paul told Timothy, your studying. 21, hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the Bible. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the Bible. It's the rules that we use. They're not complicated, they're not hard, but there are definite guidelines, rules, principles for interpreting the Bible and deciding what it means. Hebrews 7, 2, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all by the translation of his name. Ever wonder where we get the word hermeneutics? It comes from a Greek word. And if you were to read the Hebrews in Greek, you would see that word translation is where we get the word hermeneutics, the translation of his name, uh, king of righteousness. This is uh, how you would do this. And then also in Luke 24, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, Jesus, this is after he's risen from the dead and he's walking along with two disciples who don't recognize him, uh, and he explained to them, explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. That is, he hermeneuticed to them the word of God. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. They urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening. The day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it. Breaking it, he began giving it to them. Their eyes were opened. They recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining, explaining, while he was hermeneuticing the scriptures to us, explaining the meaning? So that's where we get the word hermeneutics. Number 22, as a science or system, there are rules that are understood and followed for accuracy and consistency. The rules that are understood and followed for accuracy and consistency. We'll go over some of those that we're going to use as we study the topic of, 
of eschatology. 23, many will say that rules of hermeneutics quench the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit who is leading us into all truth. And so the Spirit illuminates, but we also labor, we also study, and we do that with principles, with guidelines, with intelligence. 24, the rules of hermeneutics have been established over many years by Bible-believing scholars. The Bible has been interpreted and applied for thousands of years, and those who have done it well have done so because they have followed some basic principles or rules, and we've been given those, handed down those over the time, and they greatly reduce the number of doctrines that come out that are weird. So you read about this view, that view, that teaching, this teaching, all over the place. How is it that people can read the same Bible and come up with so many different interpretations? Well, because they follow a different system of hermeneutics. And so if one system of hermeneutics brings you to this point, another one brings you 180 degrees off, one of those systems is right, and one of them isn't. First Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, nothing that demons like to do more than mess up the Word of God. Ephesians 4.14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about, uh, about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. 1 Timothy 1.3, as I urged you upon my departure for, for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So over the years, as a pastor here, I've uh, frequently had conversations with people and said, uh, you know, that, that your teaching is not uh, accurate, not right, contrary to what we teach here at JBC. And so you got a couple of choices. One is that you can be converted to what we teach, understand it. And I'll walk through that with you and show you why we're at where we are, where we're at. But, um, and the other one is not to teach what you're teaching. Otherwise, you might want to find a church that uh, cooperates with your view a little bit more than ours does. But we want to maintain a, a purity of doctrine, a consistency of doctrine. And so that's one of the things that we do. 25, there are a number of different systems interpreting, of interpreting the Bible, but the one that is right, true, is the literal, historical, and grammatical method. So that's sort of an official title. Literal. Historical. That means we take into account the history. The Bible has a history way back to when Moses wrote uh, the first five books and all that was involved in that. And so over the years, there's been history. The people that are written about have a history. And so we understand the Bible in light of the history uh, that it's part of. And we understand that language is always uh, has a grammar. I write a blog every day. And uh, I pretty much every week get somebody commenting about, first of all, my spelling and secondly, my grammar. 
And I work on it. Man, I really do. But I guess it's just because I was raised a dairy farmer. I don't know what it is. It just doesn't seem to click. Some of it does. My biggest one, I think Miss Krause told me, was I, I don't seem to be able to understand the difference between T-O and T-O-O. Now, I don't know who did that. Whoever did that, they ought to go to hell. <laughs> just joking, you know. Just joking. I mean, why would you do that? T-O, T-O-O. So I don't worry about it. Let's make everything T-O. And if it's supposed to be T-O-O, uh, well, you'll, you'll get it. And I make a few other ones. But there's grammar. Uh, language is written with grammar. The Greek language was written with grammar. Hebrew was written with grammar. And we understand grammar is important. And so we, we study things in light of the grammar. It gives light to what's being met, understanding the grammar of the passage. And so I took Greek and Hebrew and I understood the rules of grammar. And now I don't remember what I learned, but I have now remembered how to find it on, the, on my iPad. Man, if I'd had that iPad when I took Greek and Hebrew in college, that would have been, whoa, piece of cake. So anyway, I can find out a lot about grammar. And uh, so we're, we're translating a literal method in a context of history and using grammar. 26, the literal, historical, and grammatical method looks for the plain and obvious meaning, not some obscure or hidden meaning. So sometimes when my wife talks to me, I will say this. I, I don't understand. Why? Well, she's talking to me in female. Now, she has a, a unique language, Patty does. She doesn't use proper nouns. It's all he, she, they. For 30-minute story about eight kids, 27 grandkids, six son-in-laws, two daughter-in-laws, uh, in-laws, neighbors. She'll tell multiple stories, but she will never, ever mention anybody's name. It's he, she, they through the whole thing. And I just don't get it. My daughters get it. Some of you ladies talking, I listen to you talk, and you talk the same way. I how do they do that? I don't know. But it's not literal. See, the Bible, we study it literally, the way intelligent people, men, talk. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm joking, okay? Sort of. Not some obscure or hidden meaning. It is the normal, normal way of understanding communication from others as you listen to them or read what they've written. I talk to you. You talk to me. We understand each other because we follow certain rules. We do it without even realizing it. We use the same rules when we read the Bible. 27, there are over 1,000 prophecies made about Jesus' birth, his life, his death that were fulfilled literally. In fact, you want to prove to somebody the Bible is true, just go back and look at the prophecies that were made about Jesus, his life, his death, and his teaching, and look at all that were made and that were fulfilled literally. I mean, it is the most obvious proof that the Bible is the inspired and errant Word of God that there is. And so you translate future prophecy the same way fulfilled prophecy was fulfilled. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was written a long time before Jesus was born. And then Matthew 21, 2, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied there, a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. So how was that fulfilled? Was a donkey a donkey or was a donkey a horse? Was a donkey a donkey or was it uh, a spaceship? Donkey was a donkey. Micah 5, 2, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Matthew 2, 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod. So it says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and he was born in Bethlehem. Literal fulfillment of the Bible. Psalms 22. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands, my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. That was hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified, but described quite accurately right there in that passage. Luke 23, 34, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They cast lots, dividing up my garments among themselves. So as you look at the passages in the Old Testament that were written about Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his teaching, and you say, how were they fulfilled? They were fulfilled literally. It's quite easy to see that this and this are the same, though separated by many years. So we use the same method today. 28, as we study prophecies that have already been fulfilled, we can establish rules on how to interpret prophecies yet to be fulfilled. So when I say hermeneutics, follow certain rules, somebody will say, who made up the rules? Well, God did. Just read the Old Testament prophecy and how it was fulfilled in the New Testament and see how that happened. Use the same principles. Use the same principles. Those would be the rules that we use for hermeneutics, the ones that have already been used. 29, as we grow up and learn to talk and listen, we automatically learn the rules of hermeneutics as we communicate to others. So one of the rules that I have is hyperbole. You know what that means? That's an obvious exaggeration to make a point. Now, some of you would say it's a lie. No, 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 it's not a lie. If I say I caught a fish that was a monster, you say, well, he was only six inches long. Oh, no, he was a monster. What do I mean? Uh, you know, just bigger than Ted caught. You, you, we understand uh, communication and so if somebody uses hyperbole, uh, huge, monster, just words that are sort of out there, we recognize that this is an emphasis, an overstatement to make a point. Jesus did that. But we recognize it. That's just a part of speech. That's the way you communicate. Literal isn't wooden literalism. It takes into account various uh, 
ways of communicating. We do it automatic without even thinking about it. 30, these rules that we learn are for the normal, literal way of communicating information. <clears throat> I talk to you, you talk to me, we'll have conversations in the foyer, we understand each other because we understand the basic rules of hermeneutics that we're each using. 31, a beginning step in understanding a given passage of Scripture is to determine the context of the passage. I've told you this story before, but it's a, it's a good one. Patty comes out to me in the shop. I've been running the table, so I'm uh, cutting some stuff, and it's loud, and I don't wear ear, hearing aid protection or anything. I can't hear anyway, so. And she comes out, and she says, I am so sad. I said, why? My chickens are dead. Your chickens? What chickens? My baby chickens are dead. Do I understand what she's saying? No. Why? There's no context. And I said, how did your chickens die? The tree fell on them. What? The tree killed them all, smashed the box they were in. Well, that was on the back porch. Yeah, it smashed the back porch too. <laughs> what? So my thought is, why didn't we start at the beginning? Wind came up, blew the tree over, fell on the back porch. Chicken box happened to be in the back porch, smashed the box, killed the chickens. Ah, I get it. That's female talk. They like to start at the end of the story and work to the front, or start in the middle and work both directions. Context. So we understand context in the Bible. We're always careful to interpret the Bible in light of the context of which it's written in. Uh, 32, one of the most often committed mistakes in interpreting the Bible is asking, answering the question, who was a given passage written to? Who was being written to? Because you've got to understand that before you can understand what it means. It wasn't necessarily written to you. Everything in the Bible had an audience, had somebody who was on the envelope, that is, is addressed to somebody. Who's it written to? And so you can't understand what's being written until you first of all ask the question, who wrote it? Who did they write it to? And as I look at various things that are weird, one of the mistakes is made more often than not that they don't take into account. They just assume that everything in the Bible is written directly to me. Well, it's not. It's written to people that lived during the time it was being written, and so I have to interpret it in light of who it was written to and then make application to myself. 33, every passage is part of not, of not only its immediate context, also a broader context, <clears throat> which would include history, both secular and biblical in culture. So when we talk about study, one of the things we're doing is we're f studying the context, the history, uh, the events that are occurring that uh, the particular passage was written in and during. And if you don't get that, you won't make sense of the passage. 34, there is the context of the verse, there's the context of the chapter, there's the context of the book, there's the context of the whole Bible.
And again, this rule of hermeneutics is the most often violated. There isn't another rule that is more violated than this rule of interpreting things in the context of what they're written. 35, we automatically apply the rule of context in day-to-day -day conversation. So when I talk to you, I know who you are, where you live, where you work. I know a lot of information about you. And so I can interpret, understand what you're saying because I understand you in the context of where you're, you're living. But because the Bible was written many years ago, study is required. So I have a big book, and the book is full of maps. And there's a map that covers Genesis, or parts of Genesis. There's another map that covers the exodus of Israel from Egypt, the Red Sea and the wilderness and all that's involved in there and the dates on it so I can look at the map and see and, and read. I went, I've gone to Israel three times and that was uh, very, very helpful in reading the New Testament and seeing the context of the country that the events took place that I read about in the Bible. <clears throat> 36 Bible commentaries, dictionaries, and atlases are a big help understanding the background, history, culture, and the context of a particular passage of Scripture. So I uh, recommend to people that you get commentaries that don't do the work for you. They just give you enough information so that you can do it yourself. In other words, you want commentaries that explain to you the context, the history, what's involved. You don't want those that just tell you, this is what it means. I mean, you can get those kind, but it's good to study and to discover that on your own, but get uh, books that help you with the history and the culture and all that's going on during the time that is written. There are good commentaries, 37. There are good commentaries and dictionaries, and there are bad ones. And so get some advice counsel on choosing ones that are good to use. You can get a lot of that online and you get reviews and you can see who gives you the reviews. You can ask me, you can ask Pastor Mike. I've gone through all of that stuff and I've basically narrowed it down, the ones that are good, the ones that aren't so good that, will be, are, that are helpful in this whole process. 38, the best tool for determining context is the Bible. Those who read it the most will understand it the best. So I um, started my leadership classes, and one of the things in the class uh, right off the get-go, as I say, one of the requirements for the class is to read at least 15 minutes every day in the Bible. And so there's different Bible reading programs you can get. We have one, uh, the Bible Project, that is awesome. It's got videos that go with it to explain to you, uh, the, the, you know, give you introduction to the various books of the Bible and themes in the Bible. If you haven't, don't have one, go on our church website. It'll show you how to get on it. That is a great plan, great program. Uh, 15 minutes a day is about all it takes, and uh, two or three chapters a day, plus the video that you watch. And so my particular Bible reading plan is I read 14 chapters a day, I read two in the Old Testament. I read the Old Testament through once. I read five chapters in Psalms every day, one chapter in Proverbs every day. It gets me through Psalms every month, Proverbs every month. I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Revelation. Uh, I read two chapters a day in that, and it gets me through that section three times a year. And I read Romans through Jude, four chapters. It gets me through Romans through Jude every month. 
So I read Romans through Jude every month, Psalms every month, Proverbs every month, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Revelation three times a year, Old Testament once. And some people say, well, that's a lot. Well, that's my job. That's what I do. If I were a doctor, I would, I would read medical journals. If I were an engineer, I would read engineering stuff. If I were an electrician, I would read electrical stuff. And so I read the Bible a lot because I want to understand it, because I want to teach it accurately. And so the basic principle is those who read it the most understand it the best because they see the context of the whole Bible, reading through it, reading through it, reading through it. You get the big picture and you understand things in light of the context of what's in the Bible. Uh, 39, those who read the Bible a lot will develop a Bible mind. My kids were all at our house Friday uh, celebrating my birthday, and uh, they got to talking about movies. And, uh, you know, they watch these weird things. I watch real movies. Westerns. Open Range, best Western movie ever made. I've watched it ten times if I've watched it once. I know every scene in it. I understand that movie because I've watched it. I like it. It's cool. You know, horses and cows and guns and good guys and bad guys, the whole thing, everything a good movie ought to have. And a good guy wins at the end. That's the way a good movie should be. Movies now, the bad guys win. That's stupid. So you read the Bible, you read the Bible, you read the Bible, you understand the Bible, the big picture, the themes, the trends, uh, the context. Uh, it's amazing when I read some weird stuff, then I read about the person, uh, how shallow their understanding of the Bible is often. Number 40, there are themes in the Bible that run from Genesis to Revelation and passages connected to any of those themes are understood in the context of that theme. We'll start back at the beginning. There are themes. Did you know that the nation of Israel as a nation is a theme in the Bible? Begins really early, goes all the way to the end. Did you know that the church, the bride of Christ, is a theme in the Bible that starts in chapter 3 of Genesis? People say the church is in chapter 3. Yep. And it goes all the way through the Bible, all the way to the end. There's multiple themes in the Bible. Now, they're, they just start out as a trickle of the front end, and they get bigger, and they get bigger, and you get bigger, and things add to the understanding of that theme. And so as you study the Bible in context, you recognize the various themes that run in the Bible concurrently, and you don't mess them up. In other words, you don't mix one with the other. If you do, you end up with hash. Uh, you know what hash is? False doctrine, false teaching, because you didn't keep things straight. Um, 41, those who read the Bible faithfully will recognize the various themes in the Bible. Now, hermeneutics is based on themes. If you don't keep that which is written about Israel separate from what was written about the church, you'll come up with some crazy hermeneutics. So you keep things straight as you read through the Bible, the context and who it's written to and when it was written.
42, another important and really, really basic hermeneutical tool is to interpret the Bible progressively. Now, that's not uh, the way progressivism is used today in politics. What we're meaning by the term is that the Bible is a story, a novel, and it starts and it progresses and it ends. And so we have the whole thing, but if you want to understand Genesis, you understand it as if you had only Genesis. Because the person, Moses, who wrote Genesis and to the people he wrote it to, didn't have revelation. So they don't get that. And you interpret Genesis as if that's all there is. Uh, in the context of Moses and the people of Israel who have gotten the book. And so the story unfolds progressively. And so I don't, there's so much hash out there from people who take stuff and they forget that the Bible is written progressively and so they don't interpret it uh, and, uh, progressively. Okay, here's a question. It's, I've got it on the screen. Genesis 26, 4. I will multiply your descendants. God speaking to Abraham. As the stars of heaven, I will give your descendants all these lands and by the, your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. He kept my laws. What is that? You know how many times I have people say to me, well, that, that's the Ten Commandments. Really? Who wrote the Ten Commandments? Who received the Ten Commandments? Moses. How many years before Moses was born was Abraham born? How could Abraham follow the Ten Commandments? They weren't even given yet. It's amazing how many people read that and think, Abraham obeyed the Ten Commandments. Where did he get those? Abraham didn't obey the Ten Commandments because he didn't have the Ten Commandments. So what laws did he obey? The ones that God gave him. What were those? We don't know. They weren't written down. But he had some. God gave them to him and he obeyed them and he followed them and because he did, God blessed him. But I don't know how many times I read and hear and see and hear people say, Abraham obeyed the Ten Commandments, therefore God blessed him. Oh, man. Now, do you know what that means? That means if they make that mistake, they'll make a whole bunch of others as well. The Bible is written progressively. There's an audience. And so we understand it in light of the times, the context, the history, who it was written to, when it was written. And if you don't, you'll end up with hash. Um, that's not a biggie, but it's one that's, here's one that's a little bit more complicated, but it's one that many of you have already made the mistake of. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. 
proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. Matthew 9, 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. Mark 1, 14, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. <clears throat> What's that? The gospel. You might be thinking, well, you just gave it to us. So when Jesus is preaching and teaching this, had he been crucified yet? No. Did anybody really understand that? No. He tried calling his disciples, and Peter says, no, no, no. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They had no clue about Jesus cruci being crucified on the cross until after the fact. And in fact, even after the fact, they didn't really believe it until Jesus appeared on the scene and had him touch his physical body. So the gospel that I gave you says Jesus was crucified on a cross, and while he was crucified, our sins were put on him. He was buried, and three days later, he rose again. I was in the Bible, but they didn't get that, and they didn't understand that. So what exactly was Jesus teaching them? Did you, did you know only about 1 in 25 believers that are serious Bible students can answer that question? Well, because they see the word gospel, and it's the gospel. Well, the gospel was the gospel that we know after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't until then that they understood it and began to be taught by the Apostle Paul. Before then, that's not the gospel that Jesus was teaching. So what was the gospel that Jesus taught? Because he went everywhere teaching it. <clears throat> you read the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, you can study and figure out what that means. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who inherit the earth. That was a kingdom promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So ask the average person that goes to the average Baptist church, Jesus went everywhere preaching the gospel. What was it that he preached? Well, you know, John 3, 16. I mean, he tried to explain it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus didn't hardly make sense out of it. Born again, how are you being born again? So we get it because... We live today. I went to Western Baptist Bible College, now called Corbin, and my first day in theology class, Dr. Miller said, okay, here's the first class in theology. Was John the Baptist a Christian? <laughs> well, sure. Well, I got it wrong. John the Baptist died before Jesus was crucified. He didn't have a clue about that. He knew it from a distance in Isaiah 53 and other things, but Christian means somebody that's in the body of Christ because they've believed and trusted the gospel that Jesus was crucified. He was a believer, but he wasn't a Christian. Understand the difference? 
Um, when he got done with me, Dr. Miller, I felt like the dumbest person on the planet Earth. Man, I went through Sunday school, and I went through vacation Bible school, and I was in church all my life, and I missed that one. 43, the Bible was written by many authors beginning with Moses and ending with John over a thousand-year period, over a thousand years. So it's progressive, and you understand it progressively. i got to quit. Is it time? No, is it? I messed up last week. Is it time to quit? Okay, time to quit. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you will help us each to be students, to follow principles, guidelines, and we would understand. I pray that as we look at your word in the days ahead that we will, it will make perfect sense and we will be incredibly motivated to live our life for you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.